for the love of goats. We are talking about everything goat. Whether you're a goat owner, a breeder, or just a fan of these wonderful creatures, we've got you covered. And now, here is Deborah Neiman. Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's episode. This is a really special episode because we're going to go a little bit outside of goats, but not too much. Goats will still be the focus of the show. Today, we are talking to Alexia Allen, who is reclaiming suburbia just a few miles northeast of Seattle in Woodenville, Washington. And of course, goats played a big part of that. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Welcome to the show, Alexia. Thank you so much, Deborah. It is a treat to be here. And I love this time of year. And being on this show is just part of the juicy goodness of this late summer season. So thanks for inviting me. You're welcome. This is going to be a lot of fun. When you first contacted me and told me about this, I thought, you know, this sounds exactly like the talk I give at a lot of Mother Earth News fairs and other conferences and stuff. The name of the talk is Goats is the Centerpiece of a Sustainable Homestead. And what I talk about in there is how if you have goats, um, not only can you have milk and meat, but you've also got fertilizer, you can have fiber, you can have leather. They're just amazing. And they are part of this beautiful biological loop on your farm. Like they can feed the land and then the land feeds them and then they feed you. And it, it's just so beautiful. So take us back to like when this idea to spend a year consuming only hand-produced food, how did that happen? <laughs> Well, like so many wild and crazy ideas, it started in the blossom of a new romance with my sweetheart, Daniel, back in 2011. And he and I both have a background in wilderness survival skills. And for years, I had had a little game on my suburban acreage of eating one thing from the landscape every day, one egg from my chickens, one clover or dandelion leaf off of the lawn, one raspberry from the raspberry bushes. Just every day I looked for some little nibble from my landscape. And so when Daniel heard about that and he combined that with an idea from one of his students who had spent an entire month eating wild foods, Daniel was visiting me in December and he said, hey, are you up for a pop quiz where for the next two days, we only eat food that has been harvested by hand, no grocery store involved. What have we got? Like, we know we're going to survive. We have enough calories to go through two days. So we tried it and we loved it. I mean, we had a little handful of dried corn we had different wild uh, conifer needles, like cedar needles to make tea. We had a whole frozen chicken. We had some eggs. We had some kale. We didn't have any salt. You know, we didn't have spices, but we had enough to get by. And we had so much fun with those two days of meals that we said, hey, the next time we visit, we're in a long distance relationship. Next time we get together, let's try this again. And so, of course, we were just filled with enthusiasm to gather cool new foods to share with each other. And Daniel, being the visionary guy that he is, said, what if we work towards an entire year of this? What does that look like? Let's set our sights on doing an entire year of hand harvested food in 2017. What do we need to do to build our skills? 
now starting in 2011, in order to get there. Because we had a long way to go. I didn't grow up gardening or homesteading. I have just been bumbling my way through a lot of this. And I love how it really ties into my human capabilities of figuring out how to inhabit a landscape and get good food. I love it. It's like I live in a giant four-dimensional edible crossword puzzle. (laughs) So in 2012, I fell in love with a goat at the fair, brought her and a buddy home, and started milking goats. Because, as you know, goats are alchemists. I can take the blackberry brambles off of our land, put them in the goat pen, and get milk out of it. And they're so friendly. I I tell people who come and are just amazed by my friendly goats who come when I call. Like, wow, I didn't expect them to be this friendly. I say it's like having dogs, but you get goat cheese too. Like, this is fantastic. (laughs) I adore these goats. And I've had as many as 11 goats at a time. And now I'm down to three, which is really manageable. We get two gallons of milk a day, which is what I aim for for most of the year. And Our landscape has transformed through feeding these goats and our landscape has transformed for the better. I personally don't enjoy eating blackberry leaves. The goats (laughs) do. And uh, even though I am crazy lactose intolerant myself, I'm feeding 10 people and I love making cheese. So the goats are capturing that solar energy that lands on the farm and turning it into delicious creamy milk. I have two Nigerian dwarfs and one La Mancha goat. So between the three of them, I'm cranking out cheeses all summer long. That's awesome. Yeah. And um, because you mentioned that you're lactose intolerant, there may be some people listening who are thinking, oh, I thought you could drink goat milk if you're lactose intolerant. So I wanted to clarify the difference between a milk allergy and lactose intolerance because all mammalian milk has lactose in it. That's just milk sugar. Like you have to know why you have a negative reaction to cow's milk. If you can't consume the milk in the store without discomfort, it could be that you are lactose intolerant, or you could just be allergic to the protein in the cow's milk. And if it's the latter, then yeah, you can totally drink goat's milk and sheep milk and camel milk and any other milk because your allergy is to the specific protein rather than the sugar. So just wanted to clarify that case. Anybody was wondering, because so many people just throw any kind of discomfort when consuming milk must be lactose intolerance. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Thank you. I have a lot of people say, wait, you're lactose intolerant, but you should be able to drink goat milk. Then I'm like, no, this goat milk is incredibly sweet and filled with lactose, but I appreciate the fat that the goats make. I really, really do. And I've just made many, many cheeses over the years. And like I said, the goats are real alchemists when it comes to transforming the landscape and using products that we humans can't eat and that they gobble up. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Cause we move our goats all around our farm. And right now is when they are in our backyard mm-hmm. and they're around our pond and they are eating leaves off of the willow trees and all kinds of bushes and stuff that grow around the pond. And it is wonderful because mm-hmm. they, you know how like ponds usually kind of have slopes that go in, like you can't get in there anyway with a mower or equipment, but the goats do a fabulous job 
of uh, landscaping for mm-hmm. us. Yes. <laughs> I used to have such huge issues with blackberries. When I moved to this land in 2003, it was some very overgrazed pasture and walls of spiky Himalayan blackberries. The Himalayan blackberries are pretty much gone. I almost miss them. It's not because we've had the goats roaming around so much, although we do go out on goat walks with them. But I have so many fruit trees and things. It just makes more sense for us to go harvest armloads of vegetation for my prima donna goats. And it's fast. It's easy. It gets us humans in touch with the landscape and caretaking it. We bring those brambles into the goat pen. The goats munch it down. Every six months, we move the goats to a new pen and pile up all the leaves, all the droppings, all the little zucchini stems that they didn't eat. Pile all that up and make the most exquisite compost. It is chocolate cake quality (laughs) compost. It is so good. And then we will put that compost into the garden and wherever the goats were living, that becomes another garden bed. So my husband has built me what he calls the empire of tiny goats, (laughs) all these little pens where again, like I live in a crossword puzzle. Okay. If I'm moving the goats at this time of year, where do I move them? What do I plant after the goats have been there? How long do I let that paddock rest before the goats come back? And how do I manage the compost that the goats have left behind? So I've become kind of a a connoisseur of, you know, I'm not just fermenting the cheeses. I'm also making the amazing compost and it really does wonders for the garden because our goats, you know, they get all the great minerals and things that you recommend. That's given my herd a huge health boost and the resulting compost shows it. I mean, it makes plants capital G grow. Yeah, that's awesome. So what are some of the ways that goats contributed to your year of home harvested food? Well, we encountered the hunger gap, which (laughs) is that late spring, early summertime when we don't have any more beets in storage and all the potatoes are getting sprouty and all the squash are kind of mushy and cardboard flavored. And all we've got in the garden is lettuce. Wow. Okay. You know, what do we do now? But then the goats give birth and all of a sudden we are up to our eyeballs in goat cheese and chicken eggs. You know, we could just eat goat cheese omelets with loads of greens and that will get you a long, long way. Like that is really good food. So timing the breeding of the goats so that we have that resource during that hunger gap time of year was absolutely fantastic. And even though we haven't continued on such a strict official food challenge, I mean, the goats are still the keystone in terms of getting us our dairy products for sure. Have you been using the goats for anything other than dairy products? I had a couple of fiber goats who were buddies for my buck when I was keeping a buck goat, which made more sense when I had, you know, seven or eight does. And I don't keep a buck now. So I had some fiber goats. I'm a spinner and a weaver and a knitter. I mean, it's hard to keep up with that much Angora fiber. <laughs> then I do brush my little Nigerians for their cashmere every spring and, you know, get enough to make a little lace cashmere scarf. So it's primarily the company, the dairy, the kids that they produce and the compost building powers of the goats that are their main contributions to our particular homestead. And we certainly eat 
extra kids or kids we can't sell. Although we live in such an urban area that we typically are able to sell all our kids pretty handily. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think that was one of the things for us initially when we first got goats, because they are so sweet and personable that we thought we could never eat a goat. Like that would be like eating my dog, you know, like they're just so sweet and everything. And then I remember we were vegetarians for 14 years when we first moved out here. And, you know, we had the goats for goat cheese and we had chickens for eggs and we had no plans to ever start eating meat when we moved out here. But I also didn't want to keep buying chicks from hatcheries every few years to keep the eggs going. So I got some roosters with my hens. I think I got like four roosters and 24 hens. And within a couple years, because 50% of your babies are going to be males. So within a couple years, we were up to 40 hens and about 24 roosters. And they were fighting and literally killing each other. And so we had a long conversation about, you know, there is imbalance in this ecosystem. The roosters do not like having this kind of competition for the ladies and they are doing what roosters do with lots of testosterone to eliminate the competition. And is it humane to let them do that? Because when they fight, it does not look humane. And, um, we finally came to the conclusion that, you know, quickly decapitating them or cutting their jugular was a much better way for them to end as opposed to having their eyeballs pecked out and things like that. And it's like, they have one bad moment. They don't know what hit them, you know, like it's been a beautiful life right up until that last second. And then it was just kind of a matter of like, you know, so we started eating the chickens and then it was just a matter of, you know, like, Hmm, well, we've now we've got too many baby goats, too many male goats. What are we going to do? So then it was just a gradual progression, you know, in nature, the herd gets called naturally. So, mm-hmm. um, and I discovered that I actually, I had never had goat meat before I discovered, I actually loved it. It's really delicious. One of the things that surprised me was when you told me that you were on only eight acres, because so many people think that, you know, if you were going to do what you just explained, that you would have to have at least 20, 30 acres, maybe even 40, because it sounds like a huge undertaking because like the goats provided fertilizer for you. Mm -hmm. So can you talk a little more about how you utilize the eight acres? Sure. And one of the things that kept it a little simpler was that it was really just me and my husband doing this challenge. Now, granted, we did get married during that year. And so we did a hand harvested wedding feast for, you know, 50 or so people. And I was very nervous coming up to the year of a challenge. Like, are we going to have enough to eat? You know, I don't want to run out of stuff. This is kind of terrifying because I just don't have a good sense of calibrating to how many jars of tomato sauce do we use in a year? How many apples will we eat over a course of a winter? How do I really preserve things well so that we get to eat every day? But we actually didn't need as much as I feared doesn't take too darn much to keep me alive, it turns out, you know, a lot less than I worried about. And some of that was me observing like the basic nutrition of the soil. 
where I live, it's, you know, it's been pasture land for a zillion years. It's been overgrazed. It's not necessarily what I would consider nutritious soil, even back when we started doing this. And I realized that I was getting food cravings. Like I just wanted to eat a whole bunch of dried apples, even though they weren't really, you know, filling a need for me. (laughs) And then a friend brought us kelp from the ocean. She'd gone out in her sea kayak and harvested kelp herself and brought it back to us. And I, and she dried it out, gave it to us. I ate kelp. My food cravings went away. Wow. That's interesting. I ate kelp and my food. Cra- so I was like, wow, I am hungry for certain nutrients that I'm not getting from plants grown in this soil. And that woke me up to giving my goats kelp. All of a sudden my goats aren't you know, tearing trees apart anymore. All of a sudden my goats aren't, you know, just like raging against their fences all the time. They have what they need. So that woke me up to amending the minerals in my soil. And we actually, you know, we had enough calories. We had enough space. I garden, it was less than an acre that year. And I don't do a lot of small grains. So I didn't worry about baking bread or anything. We grew some corn, which is the best you know, hand processing homestead grain, in my opinion, and big props to the ancestral corn breeders who made that magic happen, that we have this incredible plant today. So I wasn't growing wheat or anything. And we had all the space we needed, we weren't really hungry. But okay, maybe we were using 20 acres somewhere else because we did buy animal feed we rang up a pretty impressive bill at the feed store for our chickens, you know, for our rabbits, for the goats, for my ponies. So there is ghost acreage out there somewhere that fed us then and that has really enhanced the land here. So I don't know exactly where that all that land is. And we keep trying to reduce our reliance on external acreage and keep more nutrients cycling right on our land. Again, it's like this fun game of for every nutrient, for every bit of solar energy, for every raindrop that falls here, how do we make those units of energy do as much cool work as possible while they're here? So while we do bring in nutrients, I also try to do stuff like I experimented growing barley to feed my goats through the winter. So I had a, you know, 250 square foot patch of barley and we'll see what happens. Can I grow more squash and use that to feed the goats through the winter? So yes, we humans survived just fine on what we had and we produced a lot more animal products than we needed. My husband and I've had a variable number of people living at the house through the years and those people always do get to eat some quantity of the food we raise. So we were, you know, raising eggs for four to 10 people and raising plenty of rabbit meat and plenty of dairy products for everybody. So we were producing more than he and I strictly needed, but you're right. We were relying on somebody else's labor and acreage to feed our animals. That is fascinating. I know when we first moved out here in 2002, we wanted to be completely self-sufficient, you know, and so many people will ask that like, oh, are you completely self-sufficient? And you don't have to be out here very long to discover that like nobody is going to be completely self-sufficient. Like that just does not happen. Even 200 years ago, when people were traveling West in wagon trains, they purchased food like rice and flour and salt because 
you know, obviously we can't produce all those things, nor do we really need to, you know, and the interesting thing about goats that I always say, if I had known as much about goats 19 years ago, as I do now, I probably would not have wanted to have them because they're not native to North America. So for most of us, we don't have what they need to survive. You know, like when we first got goats, we had terrible problems with nutritional deficiencies here. And I can tell you that since we had cows and sheep also, that if you forget to put out the minerals for the cows and the sheep, not a big deal, you know, like, okay, it's a little embarrassing to admit, but we've gone months even (laughs) with the sheep and the cows not having minerals and it was not catastrophic. However, goats, it's not an option because they're browsers. And so like here on the plains of Illinois, there is no way that we can give them what they need to thrive. One of the last things I wanted to talk about, because a lot of people ask about this, and that is the idea of purchasing cultures to make cheese, because most cheese is cultured y'all. This is, (laughs) if you don't make cheese, let me just tell you, like for two gallons of cheese, we're talking about like an eighth of a teaspoon or a quarter teaspoon. So it's minuscule in terms of volume. I'm not even going to do the math to say like what tiny percentage that is in the whole batch, but you did try to do it the old fashioned way without purchase cultures. And how'd that go? I made one cheese that might be the best cheese I have ever or will ever make using my own kind of home fermented cultures. Uh, Let's say out of 15 cheeses, one was incredible, three were chicken food, and the rest were somewhere in the middle. So I was like, wow, this is quite a range. Uh, I'm not really getting reproducible results here. And for all the time and effort that I put into cheese making, I am just going to go ahead and buy the cheese cultures and the rennet. I totally understand how horribly disappointing it is to have all of your sweat and tears and time (laughs) rolled into a batch of cheese or yogurt or something and have it just completely flop. You know, and early on in this conversation, I said that our original goal was to be 100% self-sufficient. And so we thought, Hey, we're going to make our own culture for our cheese. And unfortunately our experience was even worse than yours. You know, you said that you had three batches that were chicken feed. We had three batches that we did not even think they were safe enough to feed to the chickens because we made a mother culture and we stored it in the freezer. And this was, I don't know, 15 years ago. So I don't even remember how long it's supposed to last, but I think it was like three months. Then you need to make a new one. Well, the first few batches that she's turned out just great, you know, no complaints at all. And it had not been three months yet. I think we were expecting that, you know, this mother culture was going to last another month. And one day my husband went to check this cheddar that was in the press and the final press on cheddar is supposed to be 50 pounds. And he happened to notice that the pressure gauge was at the very top, like literally off the chart. It it was a heavier weight than that gauge was made to measure. And when he looked into the press, he saw that the follower was tipped at an angle. And so he immediately removed it and discovered that there was some kind of weird gas growing in there. 
And the cheese was like full of like massive, massive bubbles. And he's like, oh my gosh, I don't understand what happened. You know, some stray bacteria must have gotten in there or something. So the next day he tries another batch, same result. Next day he did it again. And that's when I finally, the light bulb finally came on. And I said, you know, I don't think that mother culture is good anymore. Like this looks like some kind of wild yeast or bacteria or something is taking over. Like our culture is not doing its thing, you know? And I think that's what people need to really understand the principles behind cheese making so that they know like, okay, a mesophilic culture is not supposed to create gas <laughs> like that. <laughs> You're not supposed to have thousands of tiny bubbles in there that make your cheese press try to explode on you. <laughs> wow. So another yeah. thing, a lot of people ask us if we have made our own rennet. And again, I'm just like, no, I'm not even going to try that one. But you are more brave than me and you did try. So how did that go? Oh, gosh. Well, as most of you listeners probably know, rennet is made with the enzymes that are in the stomachs of young milk drinking animals. You know, baby goat to the original cheese makers, they drink the milk and then the enzymes in their little stomachs turn that milk into cheese curds. So, you know, anciently speaking, people would just, you just take those baby goat stomachs and you would prepare them somehow, which is a little mysterious to me. And then you can use those little baby goat stomachs to curdle your milk and make cheese. So, of course, a lot of commercial rennet today is made from calf stomachs and there are various vegetarian options as well. So I said, all right, if I'm doing this year of hand harvested food, I really want to take this seriously and see what I can do without getting anything, anything from the store, you know, no cultures, no rennet. So I can grow my own rennet because I'm growing baby goats. So this was a really tough part and it kind of lingers in my mind to this day, but I did what a lot of goat raisers around the world do, which is kill the male kids very soon after birth, either at birth or like within a day or two afterwards, so that I had some super fresh baby goat stomachs. Many of you, anybody who raises goats, I mean, baby goats are adorable and they're a lot of work. It was definitely tough for me to do this, but I wound up with some goat stomachs that I dried in the dehydrator. And then I tried using them to make cheese, like just putting a little section of that goat stomach, you know, swirling it around in my pot of warm milk to make cheese. And it worked like lo and behold. However, it's a little hard to calibrate. You know, I can't exactly measure one teaspoon or like how much enzyme is in this stomach. And there's so many variables there. And I just don't have the experience I didn't have the experience that I'm apparently not going to go out and gain more experience with this process because there are also enzymes like lipase, which breaks down lipids in those goat stomachs. And in fact, you know, goat and lamb lipase are known for making really sharp cheeses. It gives you that piquant flavor, which is good up to a point. I made some cheeses using this kid rennet and made some somewhat edible cheeses. And I had this little six-year-old friend over at my house once. It was kind of a cold day and she was hungry. So I thought, well, I'll warm up a nice slab 
of my cheese in a frying pan, you know, get like crispy and brown. It'll be like this tasty melted cheese. She'll love it. So I cut off a piece of cheese. I put it in the cast iron pan. It's bubbling away on the stove. The little girl is looking more and more upset about this whole process. Like, is Alexia going to make me eat this thing of cheese? And finally she says, Auntie Alexia, I don't really want to eat that cheese. It smells like throw up. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, wow, honey, you are not wrong, actually. Like, this, you know, the the stomach contents <laughs> part of the rennet really came through in the aroma of the cheese. So I was like, okay, this is, um, I'm not winning any converts to home cheese making here. So, you know, I kind of used up the rest of my kid rennet and have been happily using store-bought organic rennet ever since then. And it's been just fine. So I mean, that really did get me into a whole different strategy of of raising kids. I've pretty much tried all the different methods of how to rear kids and what to do with them. And maybe it's just as I have moved into middle age, I get less and less tolerant of the adolescent male (laughs) of pretty much any species. And so, you know, baby goats, they're adorable and they're a hassle. So depending on what we're doing in any given year, I may or may not want to keep baby goats around for variable lengths of time. They drink a lot of milk. Sometimes they're really hard on their mom's udders and I have to separate them from their moms anyways. And then I'm bottle raising kids and I just don't have a lot of patience. I just know this about myself, like patience for young bawling creatures, not my thing. So with goats, I can just sell them or eat them, which is really convenient. And we've certainly eaten a fair amount of goat over the years, you know, raising Nigerian dwarfs for not winding up with large amounts of meat, but it is totally enough to flavor a soup and, you know, grind up some goat burgers. And it's been worth it for me. I was vegan for many, many years. I decided to be a vegetarian when I was 10 because I really, truly love animals. And it really didn't make sense for me to eat them. And then when I moved to the Pacific Northwest and had like an intensely physically active lifestyle, I once saw somebody eating beef jerky and I just leaned in like, wow, I want that. Like I need to eat meat somehow in what I'm doing. And I want to do that with integrity. So for me, that's been raising my own meat. Like basically all the meat I eat is from animals I have known and loved and cared for, for their whole lives. And it's a huge shift. Like teenage vegan Alexia would not be pleased with what 43 year old Alexia is doing now, but I really feel that connection to those animals. All the animals on my farm have one bad day and I don't eat a lot of meat because I realize, you know, really what it takes. I'm asking a lot of that creature So it's a bit of a paradox and, you know, I let the goat kids grow up a little longer now that I'm using store-bought rennet. And I think that's probably good for everybody, but that was my adventure in like really trying to make cheese from scratch, homegrown cultures, homemade rennet, and it worked and it was less reproducible and a little less delicious. I'm sure if we worked on this project over several generations, we would get some awesome microbiomes happening, you know, here, and we would develop our own local flora, 
for the cheeses and it would work. But I'm just not quite willing to <laughs> enter into that kind of learning curve right now. I want to make good cheese right now. Exactly. Yeah. I think that's one of the things so many people, they ask, well, what did people do before we had the internet and we could order cultures and rent it and order lye? Because people have also asked me if I make my own lye and I'm like, no. And the bottom line is consistency, you know, how much time do you have and how much tolerance do you have for wasting ingredients as you are figuring out the learning curve? Mm -hmm. So, you know, we discovered pretty quickly with those mother cultures that we did not have a great tolerance for wasting our precious milk with mm -hmm. failed batches of cheese. Yeah, so. absolutely. And even using store-bought cultures in Rennet, my cheeses have gotten a lot more reliable, you know, just through my own skill and observation as a cheesemaker. So there are so many factors at play here. I was like, we just got to reduce the <laughs> reduce the number of wild card variables here. Yeah, exactly. This has been such a fun conversation. So many of the things we do here are like really deep and heavy. And I, I'm taking notes that, you know, when I'm doing everything and this has just been so much fun to yeah. talk to somebody else who has utilized goats in so many magnificent ways on the homestead. Thank you mm. so much for joining us today. It is such a pleasure, Deborah. I'm just cheering you on. I just have the sense that you have done so much for goats around the country, around the world, through helping educate people about how to really observe and be with their goats and take great care of them. And I'm just indebted to my goats. I'm made out of goat milk. So um, <laughs> it's a very close partnership and I'm really grateful for what you do. Thank you so much. Thank you. And that's it for today's show. If you haven't already done so, be sure to hit the subscribe button so that you don't miss any episodes. To see show notes, you can always visit ForTheLoveOfGoats.com. And you can follow us on Facebook at Facebook.com slash LoveGoatsPodcast. See you again next time. Bye for now.